Welcome back to Over the Top, a great war podcast. Folks, it is January 3rd, 2021, as I'm recording this podcast. So that means we're ringing in a new year. And I want to pick up my tea with a little bit of whiskey in it and give a cheers to everyone out there. Especially those whose health isn't so good. People are scared. People are losing businesses. You know what? Let me give an extra cheers to you. Sip of my whiskey tea. All right, folks. This is episode 27, part four of and the finale to my Gallipoli landing series. I gave it a lot of thought when I put this series together because the story of this campaign is much bigger than just the landings. But again, my goal for this podcast is to stay on course with a timeline. Yes, I will jump around from time to time, but I believe it just makes for a better history podcast if you stick to a timeline as much as possible. So the way this is playing out is after this episode, the talk about Gallipoli will just drop off because I have other events to discuss. I'm going to have to figure out how to and when to bring it back to tell the rest of the story. Because you can't not just tell the rest of the story. The Dardanelles was a big hitter campaign for this war. But that's for me to figure out, and figuring out, I will do. Did all of you enjoy episode 26, the Bruce Malone interview? I hope so. He's a great guy who's got a mind full of history. And this was pretty much an introduction to what Bruce does to help keep history alive. In future episodes, I'll try to bring Bruce on to go more in depth into certain topics of World War I history. I'm really looking forward to that. Did anyone get a chance to watch the documentary I, I recommended on episode 25? If you did, I hope you enjoyed it. I really did. In fact, I was talking about it with a friend this past weekend. We always recommend military movies and documentaries to each other. That's what we do. There's so much history tied to this war that's been locked up for, well, shoot, for close to 100 years or so. And they're finding some incredible things just like the documentary presented. It's amazing how it was just sitting around for all those years and nobody thought to see what these pictures and films were about until now. It's really sad, especially for people like the pilot's daughter. I mean, she's like, you're telling me this just now? She's got to be around 90 years old herself, and somebody barely tells her about what her father did after the war. It's really sad. It's like the Antiques Roadshow. Have you guys ever seen that? Some people don't know what they have in their basements that are just collecting dust. You need to get in there and dig through it to see what you might be sitting on. You'll probably notice I'm going to be releasing episodes in a faster rate of time, and there's a good reason for this. It's because I currently have a break in school right now. I'm back at school, just like Rodney Dangerfield, so currently I have a break. I have a degree in business, but I started back last semester working to get a couple certificates. So since August, I've been juggling working full-time, going to school full-time, playing husband and dad full-time, and putting out a podcast full-time. That's why it's been taking me about four weeks to get episodes out, which I'll try to get better with. Just asking for a little bit of patience. All right, let me see. Do I have anything else? I feel like I have something else, but I'm having a brain fart right now. Nope. Well, good. Let me get this show on the road. So far, I covered the Tommy's landing at Gallipoli. Now it's the Aussie and Kiwi's turn. 
The Anzac landing on April 25th started off rather smoothly compared to the landings at V and W. I think Peter Hart was correct by saying V Beach was the bloodiest for the troops on that day trying to get onto the beach. However, once the first couple waves of landings did make it to shore and they started moving inland, that's when it began to get rough for the Anzacs. I think it's best to first see a map of Anzac Cove. I've posted a couple pics of, of maps on OTT's Instagram page and Facebook to give you a picture of the area and what was where and what they were working with. You'll have to excuse the picture from my book. My cell camera has taken a beating, but this pic is the one with the most detail. The other will show you where it lies in the Dardanelles. If you're not on social media, you can just Google search map of Anzac Cove and several will come up. Sir Ian Hamilton's expectations for the Anzac Corps landing was rather ridiculous if you consider that the Corps itself was thrown together for this campaign and really didn't have much experience working together as a unit as a whole. Yes, they were training in Egypt, along with some hardcore partying, but this style of operation with a beach landing, it'll be new to them. The original plan was to have them make a landing in the cover of darkness on Ari Bernou, aka Anzac Cove. Their job was to, to defeat the Turks who opposed them, take control of the high ground that surrounded the beaches, then push across the peninsula to seize Mount Depe, which would result in the cutoff of Turkish communications. All this was to be conducted in one day, so on the second day the Anzacs could launch a joint attack with the British, who would be advancing from Hellas pushing north. Then the third day, they would sit back and watch the fleet resume their movement through the straits. Then, on to Constantinople. But as we know by now, this plan isn't going down as planned, and clearly they weren't planned for the Turks to push, put up much of a fight. The Allies believed they were a superior fighting force going into this, and on paper, well, they kind of were. Sometimes a smaller opponent can be just as dangerous as a bigger one. When you hit somebody that is smaller in stature, and they just keep coming, punching back as hard, or in some cases with more punches, it would be wise to quickly reassess your game plan. However, the arrogance wasn't coming from the troops who were actually doing the fighting. No, it was coming from the higher-ups, of course. The soldiers actually doing the fighting might have had other thoughts about the upcoming fight itself. One officer wrote the following. Tomorrow must be the most eventful day of my life. I cannot feel flurried or excited, but tomorrow will tell a different tale. We are to drive a wedge into the Turks, who are also being attacked by the British at the point. I pray that God will bless and guard all those near and dear to me, and that time in its mercy will wash away all memories of those anxious times for the dear ones at home waiting news. Captain Carl Jess, Headquarters, 4th Australian Brigade, NZNA Division, AIF, end quote. The first wave of Anzacs would consist of two companies from the 9th, 10th, and 11th battalions from the 3rd Brigade. This was roughly around 1,500 soldiers. The men were being towed by 12 steamboats, 
pulling three rowing boats in a line. They had a wide range of landing sites going from the northern part of Gabatepe to the southern part of Anzac Cove. Facing the battalions from the 3rd Brigade was the Turkish 2nd Battalion scattered all along the same front. There would be multiple waves of Anzacs landing, so just by hearing the Turks only had one battalion set in place on the beach to defend, will tell you right off the bat they're outnumbered. A majority of the Turkish officers wondered why they even let the British and Anzacs land in the first place. Why didn't they just continue to fight them off by firing at them at sea? Well, a little too late for that now. This was von Lehmann's plan for a defense. At around 0330 hours, when most people are still sleeping soundly in bed, the 12 steamboats began to make their way towards the landing sites. Confusion began to set in as junior officers became uncertain of their actual landing locations. In fact, only two officers from the 12 toes knew that where they were going and where they were supposed to be. Commander Charles Dix to the northernmost location and to the southernmost location, Lieutenant Commander John Waterlow. Only those two knew exactly where they were going. The rest of the toes were crowded up together decreasing the range of the landing spots. Charles Dix wrote the following. At first, all seemed to be going well, but when three quarters of the way to the shore, the right wing was seen to be steering across the bows of the center, who were conforming to the movement, thus crowding the left wing away to port. By this time, some of us were awake to the fact that we were already some way to port of our objective and so, in order to save as much ground as possible, the left wing went on at full speed and held their course, only altering to starboard to avoid collision. It was instinctively felt that as soon as the first boat got ashore, every other boat would at once put her help over and do the same, and that the quicker we got there, the less would be the error. Everything was absolutely quiet as we approached the shore, and there was nothing to lead one to suppose that the surprise had failed. But as the first boat touched the shore, a single shot broke the stillness, almost immediately followed by others, and the firing became general. Commander Charles Dix, HMS Majestic, end quote. The majority of the tows ended up clustering around Ari Bernou, the central location of the Anzac landing. Although the landing itself onto the beach was rather calm compared to others, they didn't exactly pull off the stealth mode they believed they were going to achieve. The Turks had actually spotted ships around 0200 hours. A Turkish captain named Faik reported to his company commander that he spotted a large number of enemy ships through his binoculars, but he was unable to make out if they were moving or not. At this point, the reserves were awoken, but after the moonlight disappeared, it was impossible to determine what exactly the enemy was up to. They only knew it was time to prepare for something big. Overall, they were unsure exactly where the landing was going to take place. There were mistakes made on both sides on this day. One big mistake the Turks made was not taking the opportunity to hit the Anzacs as they were landing onto the beach. This was when the Allies were most vulnerable because they couldn't really do much until they hit the shore. The soldiers were packed in these rowboats like sardines. They were helpless in that they could, couldn't really do anything if they started taking enemy fire as they were hitting the beach. 
this would have been a good opportunity for the Turks, just like at V Beach. But they held their fire until the boats pulled ashore. In fact, the casualties on the shore were rather minimal, and the Anzac welcoming party was rather calm at first. Could visibility have played a big part in the first wave not taking any sort of harassing fire? Probably. And I say that because the preceding waves of, of Anzacs hitting the beach that morning received the sort of welcome that was expected, gunfire. In fact, by the time the second wave hit the shore, visibility improved so much that the, that the Turkish commanders began to scramble. And why would they be scrambling at this point? Because they could see the amount of ships and tows in line waiting to land. That meant more men were going to be hitting the beach, and that meant they were spread too thin and needed reinforcements. The second wave of Anzacs was only about 10 minutes behind the first, but because of the rough terrain surrounding Anzac Cove, once the second hit the shore, they quickly caught up to the first, which also didn't help the situation for the Turks. The Anzacs were beginning to mass together. Turkish Captain Faik said the following, we came under fire from the enemy who were climbing up to the ridge where we were, from a slope 100 meters to our left. We began to engage them. In the fighting, Sergeant Suleiman was wounded. Some of the private soldiers were also hit. I too received a severe wound in the growing and was, was reduced to a state where I could no longer command the platoon. Captain Faik, 2nd Battalion, 27th Regiment, 9th Division, 5th Army. End quote. I tore my growing once in jiu-jitsu years ago, and good lord, that was painful. I couldn't imagine being shot or taking shrapnel in that area. My god. Because the Turks were spread out then, they really began to feel the pressure after the second merge with the first. And because of this, they made a decision to start pulling back behind the first ridge, where the landscape was even more difficult. The Turks hid behind these prickly, sharp brushes, and although it was tearing at their skin and clothes, it was offer, offering them concealment from the oncoming Anzacs, also making for great shooting positions. All this was taking place around 0530 hours, and this is when the 2nd Brigade began to approach the shore. One group from the 7th Battalion was landing directly towards Fisherman's Hut, where they would be met with much opposition. A Turkish officer wrote the following. We faced them with our few weapons and our faith, and thanks to the devastating fire we rained down upon them, within an hour's time we had felled and destroyed so many invading soldiers that the shores were covered with their blood. Following this, and respecting the dictates of war, whereby one must strive to hold the high ground, we went up to the hill of Chinookber, which dominated the positions held by the enemy. And then after having left some of our men there, we pretended that reinforcements had come from the rear and surged forward. In this way, we managed to gain time in favor of our main forces which were following behind us. 2nd Lieutenant Ibrahim Hayretin, 2nd Battalion, 27th Regiment, 9th Division, 5th Army. End quote. Now, the Turks did have reserves from the 9th and 19th Divisions staged in Midos, the other side of the peninsula. However, remember, other landings were taking place at this time, and they needed to assess the situation to determine how those reserves should be dispersed. Lieutenant Colonel Mehmet Sefik returned with his men from the 1st and 3rd Battalions of the 27th Regiment from training late that prior evening. 
around 0545 hours, they received reports of distress around Gabatepe. He immediately ordered his men to wake up, gear up, and prepare to step out. The men made it to the third bridge behind Scrubby Knoll just around 0800 hours. Safiq wrote the following. We guessed that the enemy was advancing slowly and cautiously in order to capture the ridge where we were, which dominated all sides, namely Chinookbear to Gabatepe. We set about our task of throwing the enemy, and we felt a moral force in ourselves for performing this task. All the signs indicated that opposing our 2,000 armed men was a force of at least four or five times that size, or even bigger. We had to prevent the enemy from reaching and occupying the dominating line and had to game time until the 19th Division arrived. Lieutenant Colonel Mehmet Safik, Headquarters, 27th Regiment, 9th Division, 5th Army, end quote. And again, going into this, the Anzacs did outnumber the Turks. And although they were physically fit, the terrain was wearing on them. They weren't ready for this. However, the Turks, because they were outnumbered, were really starting to thin out and break down. It wasn't until around 0930 hours the Anzacs began to make noticeable gains. The 11th Battalion began to push towards Chinook Bear. Even with some mortar support, the Turks were breaking down and needed reinforcements quickly. And this is where I'm going to introduce a man named Mustafa Kemal into the picture. He was the commander of the 19th Division. Now, before I go into Mustafa, I want to remind everyone that my intentions for this podcast isn't to be biased in any sort of way. I don't take sides. I sim- I'm simply here to tell the story as I know it. Mustafa is controversial in that many people view him as having been very aggressive, maybe not such a nice person, if you know what I mean. Others see him as a hero. Regardless of what your opinion is, you can never take away the fact that he was an accomplished man. There's going to be a famous quote by him that some might find disturbing. But remember, there were many Mustafas in this war, on all fronts, who commanded in the same manner. Mustafa Kemal was born in Salonika in the year 1881. He attended military school since the age of 12 and was commissioned as a captain by 1905. After the Young Turks Revolution in 1908, Kemal had negative criticisms towards the group, which put him in the, in the spotlight. But he was an asset, and the military made use of him. During the Balkan War, anger grew within as he watched from afar the Greeks overrun Macedonia. By the end of the wars, he had risen to the rank of lieutenant colonel, after which he was ordered to Bulgaria as a military attaché. When the Great War broke out in 1914, Mustafa wasn't in favor of taking the side of the Germans. He feared Turkey would decline as a state if Germany won the war and would crumble if they lost. He would have rather waited it out as long as possible, but that decision ultimately wasn't for him to make. Regardless of the side they chose, Mustafa was a loyal military commander, and duty always came first. He was given the command of the 19th Division, who on April 25, 1915, was in Midos, staged as a reserve force. At 0800 hours, Kamal received the orders to move his men towards Chinook Bear. Moving over difficult terrain and the men being pushed at a fast pace, they were getting tired. Mustafa finally ordered his men to halt 
and to take a rest at around 1000 hours. Kamal grabbed a few of his staff officers and proceeded to recon ahead of his men. Shortly after this, he came upon Turkish soldiers retreating back towards him. Mustafa recalls this, saying, Confronting these men myself, I said, Why are you running away? Sir, the enemy. Where? Over there, they said, pointing out Battleship Hill. In fact, a line of skirmishers of the enemy approached Battleship Hill and was advancing completely unopposed. Now just consider the situation. I had left my troops so as to give them men 10 minutes rest. It meant that the enemy was nearer to me than my troops were. And if the enemy came to where I was, then my troops would find themselves in a very difficult situation. Then, I still don't, do not know what it was, whether a logical appreciation or an instinctive action, I do not know. I said to the men running away, You cannot run away from the enemy. We have no ammunition. If you haven't got any ammunition, you have a bayonet, I said. And shouting to them, I made them fix bayonets and lie down on the ground. When they fixed their bayonets and lay down on the ground, the enemy also lay down. The moment of time that we gained was this one. Lieutenant Colonel Mustafa Kamal. End quote. At this time, Kamal sent for his troops. When they arrived, they formed firing lines, but still had a difficult time seeing the Anzacs. Kamal sent small dispatches to attack, which would in turn help pinpoint the enemy's locations, basically to draw the Anzac fire. It was at this point when Kamal gave his famous order. He said the following, To my mind, there was a more important factor than this tactical situation. That was everybody hurled himself on the enemy to kill or to die. This was no ordinary attack. Everybody was eager to succeed or go forward with a determination to die. Here is the order which I gave verbally to the commanders. I don't order you to attack. I order you to die. In the time which passes until we die, other troops and commanders can take our places. Mustafa Kamal, end quote. I order you to die. That's a hard pill for some people to swallow. There's two sides to this. On one side, you have Turkey, who's about to be invaded, and they have every right to defend themselves to stop the invaders. And during this, officers are forced with tough decisions. The overall goal is to stop the enemy at all costs. This is the side of either kill or be killed. And this is the sort of underlying theme of this war. Officers ordering the men over the top to die for their country and honor. When Germany was knocking on France's door trying to break it down, naturally it was expected for the French to defend themselves. This is also the case for Belgium and the British. And this is now the, was now the case for the Turks. The British are landing at Gallipoli to wipe them out so they can have a smooth path path to take over Constantinople, the heart of their nation. Mustafa ordered his men to die for the greater cause. Now comes the other side. Only one event is certain to happen after you've been given life, and that is death. And the time starts ticking once you're born. And we're not supposed to control when and how this will happen. If we do, it would more than likely be suicide, which isn't acceptable. 
So this side goes down the more humanitarian path with the question, since we are to control our destiny with death, should another person be able to determine when and how we should die? Is this the same as murder? This is war. Do the same rules apply? This wasn't the people's war. This wasn't a revolution where the people were fighting for a greater cause. No, this was a war between aristocrats. Throughout the Gallipoli campaign and the entirety of the Great War, both sides pointed guns at their soldiers' heads and gave them the option. Either you go forward and die, or I will end your life right now. These are tough questions and even, even tougher decisions that had to be made. In this case, I'm left side, right side brain. One side understands the harshness and the other side sympathizes. I'm in the middle. If Mustafa and the rest of the Turks would have standed down and surrendered, their way of life would have been lost. So that side of me commends Mustafa for fighting. They succeeded and Battleship Hill was taken over. But the other side of me could see things from a humanitarian standpoint. It's confusing, I know. But overall, this whole war was a catastrophic event in our history, which should bring up questions that aren't so easy to answer. When the Anzacs were giving chase to the retreating Turks, they began to establish ground and take up positions. They believed the ground that they gained was in their possession for good. At this point, they didn't imagine the Turks turning back around and resuming a fight. You see the enemy retreating, naturally you assume that you have the upper hand. However, once a steady stream of bullets was coming at them, they realized reinforcements must have arrived. And that was Mustafa's men. Eventually, after establishing where the Anzacs were dug in, the men from the 19th would move in groups. They would fire on the Anzacs, and once the Anzacs started firing back, they would try to take cover. It was like a game of cat and mouse. But men were being dropped all over the place. Any man who was in the open or peeked around a dirt mound or a corner for too long was dropped like a sack of potatoes. When the Turks, Turks would charge forward, Aussies would put a hole in them. And vice versa. Some men clashed head-to-head -head killing with bayonets or anything else out of desperation to kill the enemy. You'll have to use your imagination of what that would have been. All this was happening as the Anzacs were losing the ground they gained. It now seemed like a never-ending wave of Turks flowing down on them. The Kiwis made it to shore around 12.30 hours, but by this time the situation was chaotic. There seemed to be no organization. An Auckland sergeant described arriving onto the beach, saying, There was no organization. The officers were all away on a reconnaissance. We carried on up the goalie being pushed from behind, and we found it rather tough going. We passed streams of Australian wounded going down the goalie, and they were all urging us to go to this place or that as reinforcements were wanted. I think really what happened to the Auckland Battalion was that they went to a number of different places just as their inclination took them. But as far as I was concerned, I ended up far up on the left on Walker's Ridge. Sergeant R.H. Harris, Auckland Battalion, New Zealand Brigade, end quote. It was pure chaos. The Aussies, who were still in the fight and the New Zealanders coming onto shore, really had no clear direction. They were getting a good fight from the enemy that was now reinforced and their own command was breaking down.
The Anzacs were desperate for bigger support. They needed the big guns, something that could really deliver a devastating blow to the enemy's morale. They needed artillery. The 26th Indian Mountain Battery arrived at 1200 hours, but it really didn't do much for the cause. Their position was too exposed. They took heavy fire and were forced to retreat back to the beachhead. The artillery and the allies were desperate for was a no-show at this point. All the men could do was dig in. They began shoveling earth for, for protection because they had no idea how long they were going to be there. Let me turn the focus on another aspect of this battle, the casualties. Think about the wounded at this point. The Allies only had two hospital ships to support the entire landing site at the Dardanelles. Men are not only pouring down from Anzac Cove bloody and badly wounded, they're also pouring in from the other locations. Talk about chaos. Imagine being a surgeon or a nurse aboard one of those ships. And the ships were overflowing by now. They had a dilemma. Do they start shipping wounded to Egypt? And if so, which ones? Dying men wouldn't have survived the trip. A large amount died of gangrene and lack of care, and men who weren't mortally wounded were more than likely going to be patched up and sent back out. They didn't plan for this many casualties. The hospital ship's floors were puddled with blood and gore. The smell must have been horrendous. Men and women were working as best they could to save as many as they could. But in reality, with not enough staff and equipment, not all could be saved. Imagine lying on a stretcher dying, then being told you're going to the hospital ship. There must have been some hope, but once you got to the ship, I'm sure that hope faded away. Would it have been better to die next to your pals on the field of battle or on the floor on a stretcher in a chaotic hospital ship? That's a tough decision. Surrey and Hamilton eventually received word about the Anzac situation. He then relayed orders to the commanders that they would be fighting it out where they stood, dig in place. And in a nutshell, that's how the Anzac landing went down. And overall, this is how the April 25th Gallipoli landings went down. The Turks stood their ground, hit the Allies hard right out the gate at some locations, and others were stopped by Turkish reinforcements like Mustafa's men. The terrain was jagged, sharp, steep, and downright treacherous. The Anzacs were pushed back or halted in place, forced to dig in for a long drawn out bloody fight that cost thousands of lives. Anzac Day is a day of remembrance in New Zealand and Australia to commemorate all the men and women who died in all wars, conflicts, and peacekeeping operations throughout the world, and it's always celebrated on April 25th. All right, folks, I'm going to start wrapping this episode up right here. Again, I have to figure out how I'm going to tell the rest of the Gallipoli story. It ended January 1916, so I'm probably going to tell this, the rest of the story in one shot. Not sure as of yet. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I learned a lot just from the Gallipoli landing is itself. I mean, this is what history is. It's picking up a book, gaining the knowledge. The only difference is I'm retelling it on a podcast. The heart of my reading material for this series comes from the book Gallipoli, written by Mr. Peter Hart. Folks, there's so much more to this story than what I talked about, so I encourage you to go out and get his book. You won't be disappointed. 
Historians like Peter Hart are the reason that cavemen like myself are able to learn and have podcasts, and I encourage you to support him and other historians like him. And it only makes sense to make his book this episode's World War I recommendation. Folks, please be safe out there. These are crazy times. I'm not even sure what the status on the virus is, but I'm hoping all of you are in good health. If you're on social media, please like Over the Top, a Great War podcast on Facebook and follow me on Instagram at OTTGW podcast. And of course, you can always email the show at OTTGW podcast at gmail.com. Ah, that brings up something to mind. A couple people reached out to me through email informing me that there was an issue with episodes being out of order and some were missing. It was a mess. I immediately contacted Podbean, which is my host, and we got it fixed. So thank you for informing me of that. If you hadn't said anything, I wouldn't have known. So two big up, two big thumbs up to you folks. You fans are the best. All right. Until the next episode, take care, everyone. <laughs>